Welcome to Purdue Crop Chat, a regular podcast from Hoosier Ag Today and the Purdue University Extension Service, featuring Purdue Extension Corn Specialist Dr. Bob Nielsen and Extension Soybean Specialist Dr. Sean Castile. On Episode 5, they're joined by two guests, including the Indiana State Climatologist. When I went back and looked at the records, we never have seen temperatures that low, below 28 this late in May. So this is a very unusual event that did occur. The subject on this episode, the impact of the weekend freeze event on Indiana corn and soybean crops. But the temperatures in this freeze event, the subsequent temperatures for the last two and a half or three days has been so cool that there's been no opportunity for those uh, plants to recover if they're if they're going to recover. Now with Purdue Crop Chat, here's your host, Who's Your Ag Today's Eric Pfeiffer. Welcome into the Purdue Crop Chat podcast. I am Eric Pfeiffer from Who's Your Ag Today, and I'm here with really the stars of the show, Purdue Extension Corn Specialist, Dr. Bob Nielsen. Bob, hello. Hi. Also, Purdue Extension Soybean Specialist, also a star of the podcast, Dr. Sean Castile. Thanks, Eric. I appreciate that. And we've got a couple of guests today. Uh, also with Purdue University, Indiana State climatologist, Dr. Beth Hall. Hello, Beth. Hi, everyone. And Purdue Extension Forage Specialist, Dr. Keith Johnson. Keith, thank you for joining us today. Pleased to be here. So we've got a lot of PhDs in the room, a lot of knowledge to pass around. So that's what we're going to do today. And all of the talk here has been about this cold snap that came in over the weekend and a lot of the cold temperatures that are still sticking around here. So, Beth, I want to start with you. Can you kind of explain for us the severity of this past weekend's frost event? This was rather extraordinary. And uh, even though climatology, we look in the past, uh, I was not thinking this was going to happen at all at this time. So uh, it was from Friday, May 8th over to Saturday, May 9th. And so many records were broken for that day of the recording, uh, mostly uh Low temperature records were broken all across the state, all across uh, the Midwest area. And I think in addition to just records being broken, what was so extraordinary about this event was how low the temperatures were getting and for how long. So across the majority of the state, we were seeing temperatures in the mid-20s Fahrenheit, so 23 to 27 degrees Fahrenheit. And this, these low temperatures were lasting anywhere from five to eight hours, which, again, is a very long period of time for, for uh, early May. When I went back and looked at the records, uh, we never have seen temperatures in that low, below 28, this late in May. And so this is a very unusual event that did occur. And with that, Beth, so uh, you, you got a, a nice map together you sent us. And so I'm looking at the northern uh, probably quarter of the state and we probably had upwards what 10 11 hours even below 32 degrees all right yes and even though we have had uh years where we've reached that 32 degree fahrenheit temperature and and slightly below i couldn't find any years that it lasted for that many hours so it probably just dipped to right around 30 32 degrees and then came up so that 32 degree threshold it's it's a rare event indeed, but I wouldn't say it's record breaking. We're dropping below the twenty eight. That that is new for this time of year. 
And how, would, how, how deep did that really go into the state, you know, in terms of you say we've got a range of, you know, five, six, seven, eight hours on a lot of this. How deep did that go down in the state as far as if you want to kind of throw, you know, towns into the mix? Uh, so from the data I'm looking at, Indianapolis saw six consecutive hours, but we go down to even um, just south of that, Shelbyville, uh, Bloomington, they only saw one hour. Okay. If that so too. So there was quite a dividing line from just north of Indianapolis versus south for the, the really harsh cold temperatures. And Beth, do you have any information on uh, particularly, say, 28 degrees or lower, how many hours there may have been in places around the state for that lethal level, that lethal threshold? So that's where just north of Indianapolis, I was seeing six consecutive hours. Some places saw eight, ten consecutive hours. So I think the safest range was probably between five and eight hours uh, consecutively uh, in the northern half of the state. So north of Indianapolis. My concern then is the variability with even within a field, let alone the state of Indiana. And as people go about and scouting, isn't it prudent for them to not just walk into the field uh, off of a side road, but really take a really good look, particularly in depressional areas as compared to upland? Right. This type of cold event um, is what's called a radiational cold event. So we had very clear skies, virtually no winds. So any of those low-lying areas, valleys within a field, they likely got colder and perhaps longer because the cold air drainage would have settled down there. A lot of these weather stations are uh, tried to be sited in more average locations or even up on a hill so they aren't dealing with obstructions. So I definitely would not be surprised if people thought or saw worse damage in the lower lying areas. Well, Keith, I was I was walking around some soybean fields that are in the area that were planted early April. And so uh, you talked about the areas of, of topography. I think even areas that are next to the grass, you know, ditch bank, uh, those tend to be worse of the fields I've walked. So again, the idea of just doing a even pull off, you get in the field uh, 50 feet, that doesn't really do you justice because all of a sudden your heart's going to drop to your feet because of how, how nasty at least it is on the edge. Um, so I agree. I mean, you have to go through that whole field. Um, Keith, I, one thing I want to bring up with you on in particular, when we talk about these temperatures that Beth was making the comment of what, 28 degrees or, or lower, you know, we, we've got a fair number of acres of soy and, and corn, but I mean, we do have wheat out there. And so we can have some injury. Typically, when I think of wheat injury, you know, it, it gets uh, worse as we get advanced in growth stage, right? So if we we think about we've got fields that are in jointing stage, um, you know, they can withstand some pretty, pretty low temps, 24 degrees, right? And then we get into some that are between the joint and the boot, it kind of transitions to that 28 number. So um, I guess my question for you, Keith, uh, to bring you into this, again, as a forage specialist and think about some of these weed acres that you know, we've probably got another week or so on this this recent event to determine if the growing point was damaged or not, right? And we can split the stem, but there's still got another week to see how that plays out. What are some options if the growing point, if the, the head, if it was in boot stage is, is sterile, what are some forage options with wheat? Well, actually, the previous freeze event, uh, I had pictures sent to me from Bartholomew County, uh, Columbus area. And uh, there was enough serious uh, damage there that they were going to take a portion of the field. And this was destined to be grain. And 
they were going to take uh, it, uh, you know, three weeks ago as a forage. And so really, um, wheat at this stage makes a very fine animal feed. Um, my caution would be, though, for people that uh, had it slated for grain production is to make sure they check labels of uh, any herbicides uh, that have been applied to make sure that it can go towards that pathway of being an animal feed. Uh, certainly there are more restrictions in the forage area when we know that as compared to going maturity of grain. So I think some caution has to be exercised there. But yes, if we um, harvest wheat, uh, even up to early heading, uh, the quality is certainly uh, such that it makes a very uh, acceptable feed. Uh, we have to watch the weather, of course, if we're thinking about um, making it as dry hay, uh, need to be making that at uh, less than 20% moisture uh, as it goes into a bale. Uh, people are doing the baleage, essentially you see the large marshmallows around or the tubes uh, where they take large round bales, or that can be done with rectangular as well, um, and uh, make baleage, which is a fermented bale. So that's an option when weather is inclement, but of course, to make that happen, it's easier said than done because you have to have the equipment to do that. And uh, many people that had the option of taking this to grain production may not have that easily in their own arsenal of equipment. So they're going to have to look for sourcing to make that happen. Well, the one thing that does come into mind on those kind of situations, you know, there's not a lot of acres in the state, but there's enough. Um, and those that were in the southern half, southern third, you know, they would typically going to double crop that anyway. And so, I mean, soybeans are coming into that 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 mix. Uh, whereas you go central to the north, okay, that, that double crop opportunity is pretty slight in a normal year. So if we are to pull that off as a forage, now we open up the opportunity uh, to, to bring things in. Well, in recent conversations, then after this cold snap happened, uh, I actually had conversation with livestock producers that the intention was to take the wheat as a forage crop and had no intention of taking it to grain. And as we've gotten into more use of uh, cover during the course of late fall through the winter and into early spring, uh, some people have opted to use uh, cereal uh, rye or have used uh, wheat for that purpose with uh, the intention of actually harvesting it as a livestock feed and not terminating it and immediately then following through with the corn or corn planting or soybean planting. So, Bob, are you seeing anything going on on the corn front then with some of these uh, earlier plantings that you've had across the state or others have? Well, the good news is that in reality, there wasn't all that much corn planted anyway, and even less that was emerged. Um, there was one field actually out the Grammy farm that was planted the uh, first week in April for one of our colleagues to use uh, for some disease work later. But it was uh, about V1, uh, thinking about being at V2 when the freeze occurred Saturday morning. So I've been watching that field because that that would represent certainly one of the earlier planted fields in this area, let alone perhaps the state. Um, you know, the above ground plant parts are toast. Uh, the, they're basically, they're fried all the way down to the, to the surface. And I was out there uh, yesterday looking at it and uh, no hint whatsoever of uh, visible recovery above ground yet, which sounds sort of nasty, right? But but when you dig these plants and split the stem and look at that growing point region at the crown, it was still firm, it was still yellowish white. Um, 
and and at least on the surface it looks like it's still healthy but the temperatures in this freeze event the subsequent temperatures for the last two and a half or three days has been so cool that there's been no opportunity for those uh, plants to recover if they're if they're going to recover um the, from what I can tell, looking at some of the information from the automated weather stations at the PACs, where we record soil temperatures at four inches, uh, it certainly looks like, even in the areas where it got down to 24, 25 degree air temperature, it certainly looks like soil temperatures did not similarly drop to those lethal temperatures. Uh, Jim Beatty at the Grammy Farm was doing some measurements of his own at, at even the one inch depth. And at the agronomy farm, where the, the low temperature, uh, air temperature was 25 degrees, uh, that one inch depth only got as low as 38. So if that's true across the rest of the state where we had these mid-20s air temperatures, then that bodes well for corn. Because at, at this young stage at emergence and one leaf, even two leaf stage, that growing point is about three-quarter inch below the soil surface. So if it truly didn't get to those lethal temperatures below ground, then we're just talking about this cosmetic damage above ground. And once we return to warmer weather later this week, I think fields that have been toasted off above ground, I think by this weekend, there's going to be some noticeable expansion of those whorl leaves. Uh, and it'll be pretty clear by this weekend. Now, what I worry about is, you know, with this forecast rain, I think still coming in uh, later this week, there's probably some individuals that are chomping at the bit to replant fields that they think are dead. Well, the risk there is, is that if they go in and replant yesterday or today, and in fact, it's not dead, and they all recover, and they go in with a full seeding rate to replant, well, now they're looking at 60,000 plants per acre. And so I hope people haven't pulled that trigger, and I hope they've been patient and, and, and give it a you know, few more days of time before they make a decision, because I'm thinking at this point, there may not be many fields that need to be replanted. I, I was worried leading up to the freeze event, but but I'm thinking on what I've seen uh, locally around here and some of the reports I've had from around the state, I'm hopeful that, in fact, there won't be much replanting that's necessary for corn. And, and what you're talking about is what's already been planted and, and up and emerged, right? You know, you think about last week, uh, I was just looking at the numbers, you know, had another 20% uh, acreage of corn put in the ground last week, and we probably had another oh, 15% of soy put in the ground. And I saw planters rolling on Thursday and Friday, and, and everyone knew what was coming in, but soil conditions were dry-ish and better than 2019. And so I, I think that pushed a lot of people. What's, what's your thoughts, concerns as we now, a 38-degree soil temp, with a seed that's fresh in the ground and watered imbibing, right? That, that's a different scenario than the growing points three quarters of an inch from the soil and how that plant is going to respond. So, you know, your thoughts on the corn side, and I can throw a few on the soy if I want. I still think there's a good risk of this inhibitional chilling injury, <clears throat> even in this early May time period for the, the reasons you said. I mean, there, it just has to have been risky to do it. Now, It'll remain to be seen, of course. I mean, we're talking maybe another week or maybe even longer before we'll know for sure if corn that was planted last week uh, will experience some of these problems. But I still fully expect that that you know, given how many nights we had where the soil temperatures dropped down into the low 40s and maybe occasionally into the high 30s, but even uh, soil temperatures in the low 40s and the seeds imbibing water, that's a high risk situation. And, and so I, I still think 
generally speaking, every field of corn that's been planted to date needs to be scouted over the next few weeks because there's a certain amount of risk, I think, associated with every field across the state that's been planted for, for the, the freeze reasons, for imbibitional chilling. And I'll just throw in that, that, of course, you know me, I love to fearmonger. The next thing I'm fearmongering about is this corn that's been in the ground three to four, maybe five weeks, the seed coating, the fungicidal seed treatments have deteriorated. I mean, they're gone. And as we now get into a warming trend later this week and forecast of rain rewetting the soils, I am scared that there's going to be an outburst of seedling blight uh, explode over the next seven days in some of these fields. And I think folks are going to be surprised that fields that today when they're digging or looking at them, they technically look healthy. And I'm afraid in a week's time, there could be some real issues out there with seedling blight. I was visiting with Darcy Telenko this morning about this, and she concurs that, that it's certainly a high-risk situation when you've had seed in the ground that long. Uh, and even if it's emerged, it's only maybe V1 or, or two-leaf stage at most, and that's still susceptible to the effects of seedling blight on the kernel and the mesocotyl. Keith? Yeah, I have a question for Beth. Um, are the rains that are expected to come in to be storms or the nice gentle rains? Because then I think about crusting of corn and soybeans in the field. So the forecast that I've seen is it's going to be, uh, the probabilities are going to be relatively continuous for quite a few days. And we're looking at up to four or five inches in the northern, northwestern part of the state, uh, one to two inches in the southern part of the state. So we're talking about a lot of rain, but it doesn't look like it's all coming in just a few hours. Um, The highest maybe six hour period I saw was going to bring about a half an inch. So that seems like it's going to be more steady than heavy downpour, but we're talking about a lot of water uh, over that time. So I would be curious even if there's going to be some runoff issues that could come from this as well. Temperatures should certainly be warmer, which will be very welcome, but we're talking a lot of precipitation. But that much rain and warm temperatures, it's going to take a long time for those saturated soils to dry, and that's prime, prime, prime territory for seedling diseases. And that scares me even more, Beth. Thank you. Yeah, and, and that goes doubly for, for the soybean side, right? You think about some of the seed treatments that we have. I mean, I, I like to plant late April, or early May if fields are fit. And certainly we've got those fields that are like that. And those that are even earlier April are planted. I mean, we're the same boat, Bob, you know, four or five weeks out, seed treatment's gone. And so now we're getting into cool, well, warmer, wet. I mean, it doesn't matter. Cool, wet or warm, wet, we've got seedling diseases to hit it. And so we, we've got that recovery that's occurring um, and, and just a couple of points to make and then uh, get into this. the same assessments that that you brought up, Bob. You know, I was looking at the soybean field. So we're different, right? Our growing point is above the ground whenever those things have emerged. And so that's an issue as we look at you talk about the cosmetic damage. Well, it's more than cosmetic damage on soybeans. Uh, and the, the real crux of the matter is to go out, scout and then to look at, OK, what portion of that plant is dead? Are we talking about uh, the growing point where the unifoliates are and so like the VC type plant, but we still have cotyledons that are nice and green? Well, technically the growing point's dead, but then we've got axillary buds. And so a lot of cases when we still have green uh, cotyledons or let's say you had a plant that was more advanced, uh, V1 even, uh, that you take out that growing point plus a, a trifoliate, but you've got the unifoliates 
it'll split them. So we'll, we'll have essentially two plants on one stock, root stock, and be just fine. So as folks get out and look at soybeans, they need to just look at not, is it yellowing, dead, brown, but where is it yellowing, brown, and dead to, to make that assessment? Because it's not uh, like uh, Keith made the comment and Beth did as well, low-lying areas. This is seems so random when you look at these fields uh, in a field yesterday. They're within six inches of each other. You got a dead one and you got a live one. And so it's just to have that assessment of how much is going to be dead. And then after that is soybeans can withstand a, a fairly low plant population and still yield well. So um, we're not an all in or all out kind of situation. Is there any opportunity of making use of UAVs to help assess uh, the situation we're in, or is it too early to really get any read from that? I think with either crop, the plants are so small, there's no way you're going to do an autonomous flight to, to map a whole field because you'd have to be flying so low to get good images that you, you, you don't have enough batteries to do that. So what, I'd, what I've been suggesting to people is that instead of autonomous flights, just go out and fly manually and basically do spot checks around the field. You know, fly out to this area, bring the, the UAV down to, you know, maybe six feet, maybe three feet. And just take a photo or a video, then take it back up and zoom out to another place. And then just hit areas in the field. It might be the low areas, the upland areas, et cetera. But get a bunch of individual photos or a little bit of video. And I think there's opportunities there. Well, and that's a differential of the type of crops that we work with. Because if we were looking at wheat or we were looking at forages, I think that would be a potential use to just get an idea where the worst damage might be. So you could go assess... uh, you know, on a really plant basis uh, by taking a, a walk to those areas and assess what the real real concern right. is. Like I say, just a photograph of that uh, cold incident a few weeks ago in uh, Bartholomew County uh, definitely showed that there was topography differences. So a flight might be able to uh, show some things and things that are green and growing now. Well, we've done a little bit on, on altitudes and growth stages to assess stands on the soy side. And, um, you know, we can do a relatively good job, even as early as these VC plants at a low 30 foot altitude. But again, you're not doing the whole blessed field that way. Right. We're just doing a a cross section of the field to to catch it. And that's with good looking plants. Right. Now that we've got this this uh, transition of good, poor in between, plus some corn residue, plus some soil moisture, it's I think it's going to be a a difficult task. Um, Love to be able to do that. Keith, but I I think it would be very difficult. Um, One thing I did want to say, at least on the soybean, as we we look at assessing these fields, you know, which plants are alive, which ones are dead, and then which ones are going to split stem. So you've got that kind of categorized and then, okay, what is the population of those? And so the the rule of thumb that I have through, you know, our plant population studies, our replant studies. So if we're anywhere close, just so people have the number, we're anywhere close around 70,000 plants per acre that are viable. So whether that's going to be the one that's become a split stem or no damage, um, that's that's the gray area of, yeah, I'd probably leave it in most situations. If we're below that, and certainly the first, second week of May, we got plenty of time to replant, overseed, whichever version you want, uh, especially if most of these are probably VE to VC, and still get full yield potential. Um, and if we're anything north of 70,000, 80,000, you know, that's, that's a no touch kind of thing. 
And somewhat related to that, Sean, it's probably fair to say with either crop, I mean, there's still half of the corn left to go and how much of the soybeans left to go? Yeah, uh, Monday the report was we had 37% planted, yeah. so just uh, so, 60%. Right, so so you know, if, if, you, if it's somewhat questionable whether this field is damaged enough, you ought to be replanting, I'm saying you better get the rest of the fields planted yep. first and get the rest of your crop in. And then that, first of all, it's going to give a few more days to see how the other ones are doing. And, but I think at this point, it's most important to get the rest of the crop planted and then go back and assess some of these possible ones for replant in, in either crop, I think. Well, and I think we both on, on corn and soy in particular, we say, you know, give it at least three to five days. Well, that's where we're at right now. And just to echo right. your same comment, three to five days at 55 degree highs isn't going to be enough time. So that's right. let the 70 degree weather, it's coming into the week and rain yeah. come through and, and then really get a good, good assessment next week. Yeah, I agree. You're listening to Purdue Crop Chat with Bob Nielsen, Sean Castile, Keith Johnson, and Beth Hall, and your host, Eric Pfeiffer. As we wrap up our time here on the Purdue Crop Chat podcast, uh, we heard a little bit from Bob about what concerns him most, Sean. What are your biggest concerns here as we move forward for soybeans and when we can actually get back in the field after all this rain that Beth is telling us about? Right. I, I think there's going to be a lot of the, the echoing of, okay, of what is in the ground, how much of that seed treatment is is washed away. And then if we're getting into this wetter pattern or soil conditions, what diseases would set, settle in? So if we think about those with the from the Phytophthora side to the Pythium and, and everywhere in between, Rhizoc, those are issues that kind of come to my mind. Um, the other ones is, you know, I saw some burn down going down uh, even yesterday. And so question how how strong of a, a kill we're going to have on some of these fields that they're just about to plant into. I mean, we had a conversation a few weeks ago with Bill Johnson, right? We need warmer temp- temperatures for those weeds to be actively growing and taking up the herbicide to get a good kill. And, you know, whether that's weeds or whether it's a cover crop, I, I think that's something we need to put in perspective. Um, those are probably the biggest ones I want to hit right now and, and be concerned with. And uh, and then, again, growing, going forward to get the fields planted that haven't been planted yet. Go Beth, ahead, Bob. If you've, one if, more. You, yeah, if you've got more fear-mongering to do, go ahead, Bob. No, no. <laughs> I've got a, another question for Beth. Would you please regurgitate those estimates of possible rainfall and where in the state that may occur? Northwestern third of the state. It's sort of a, a diagonal there. We're looking at four to five inches of rain. And then it transitions down to between one and a half to two inches, uh, or even below that, one to two inches in the southeastern part of Indiana. So it's sort of a northwestern to southeastern gradient where the highest amounts, four to five in the northwest and the lowest amounts in the southeast. And And that's the seven days. So that represents from today through May, May 19th. Okay, wow. That's quite a bit of water. Yes. It'll grow some alfalfa. There you go. <laughs> well, Eric, Eric, you made the comment about uh, a room full, virtual room full of PhDs. You know what that means. We're just piled higher and deeper is all it is. <laughs> is that what that stands for? That's good. It is. It is. Piled That's higher good. and deeper. Dr. Bob Nielsen, Dr. Sean Castile, Dr. Keith Johnson, and Dr. Beth Hall. Thank you all for joining us on the Purdue Crop Chat Podcast. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you. This has been Purdue Crop Chat, a regular series featuring Purdue Extension's Dr. Bob Nielsen and Dr. Sean Castile. This episode moderated by Who's Your Act Today's Eric Pfeiffer. 
I'm Andy Eubank for Purdue Crop Chat, a service of Purdue University Extension. And who's your ag today? Timely, relevant, credible.